0: But tonight, we're going to be looking in Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11 at the Father's love. The Father's love. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. They did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. When Israel was a child, I loved him. The aged Apostle John would put it this way Behold, What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. I'm afraid if we aren't careful, it is possible that we may lose our sense of awe. What incredible truth that is. And I say that because John wrote it that way. Behold, behold. Well, John, what are you going to show us that you have to call such attention to it in that way? Behold. Behold how much God loves us. Now, that's something to look at. The old hymn writer probably said it the best. And I love this part of that old hymn, The Love of God. Uh, I'm not sure who all have sung it, but it was probably made most famous by George Beverly Shea. And yeah, last week I was listening to a little bit of those uh, uh, Gaither uh, reunions and there was Bev Shea up there uh, singing. And of course, what did he sing? Uh, the Love of God. I don't know how old he was. Way old. Way old. Voice scratchy, almost gone. But still he belted it out. Could we with ink the ocean fill And were the skies a parchment made Were every stalk on earth a quill And every man a scribe by trade To write the love of God above Would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole. Though stretched from sky to sky. I can't sing it like Bev did, but still a great song. We talk about the love of God that is an inexhaustible subject. The love of God for His children. Sin, you see, had separated us and alienated us from God. And yet the glorious truth of our regeneration, how God made us alive. Our justification, how we were declared not guilty according to law. Our reconciliation through Jesus Christ, has brought us into this loving relationship, children of God. Galatians 3.26 says, For you are all the sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, in our message tonight, in the Old Testament book of Hosea, God is giving a message describing how He has dealt with Israel as a faithful father And it isn't surprising, then, that he will frame his message through the prophet around God's tender compassion, the tender compassion that he has for us, the troubling concerns, and also the time of correction. It's a faithful father, you see, who's able to look at his children, seeing their strengths and their weaknesses, their successes and their failures. It's possible for a father to get so involved in being critical that he never sees all the good things, never commends all the good things that their children does, and yet he points out every flaw, every failure. It's a a terrible thing to do, dads. It's it's an easy trap to fall into. Uh, But God uh, isn't that way. He doesn't just see our faults. He also sees our successes. And if that's true, and it is true, it doesn't take much of a success. (laughs) Remember Jesus talked about giving a cup of cold water. Amen? I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot of success for God to see it and to see the significance of it. It's also possible for a father to lapse into a mode where he sees only his children's success. And can never accept the fact that there's anything wrong with their child. Or that they ever make a mistake or ever do anything wrong. Never offers correction at all. Either side of that is a terrible injustice to children. Then We need both. We need to affirm them as every bit as much as we try to correct them. It is a faithful father who does both well. And we can't always do them well. I don't think any of us would say that we always uh, walk that line uh, the way that it should have been walked. But I can tell you one who does. Our faithful Father God always walks that line. He always sees when we have failed. He always sees when we succeed. Over the next two messages, it will take us two messages to preach Hosea's message about uh, the love of our faithful Heavenly Father, a Father. The Father's love. Because you see, He's going to show us both sides of that as He commends them. Even as he also points out where they're messing up. But then he also talks about that correction. We'll begin tonight then with the tender compassion. Much like we saw this morning in a completely different passage and a different message. We see God providing us with this imagery of a father. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it should. That is a messianic prophecy. We know that because it's identified that way for us in the New Testament, and it is a reference to Jesus Christ. But we can see it in the context. And in the context of that Old Testament passage, when God said, out of Egypt I've called my son, he's talking about how he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. They were his children. They were indeed his son. And he spoke of it in just this way so that it would always give us, also give us then that prophecy and promise of what would happen to Jesus as he comes out of Egypt. God indeed brought them out of that place of idolatry. And almost immediately they were going right back to it. They were in a place of idolatry and as he brought them out, there it was. And so God speaks in of how he was so patient with them. And what a beautiful image that is. uh, As God describes how he would take little Ephraim by by the hand. Just like we and I would do with that little toddler. and Just lead him along. You can hear that little toddler cackling if you listen real close. Just a laugh and throwing his head back. Ha, ha, ha. Big old smile. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. Uh, See, a little toddler doesn't know that actually that is the one that's doing it. But God's people need to know that. We need to always remember that we're leaning on the everlasting arms of God. He is the one who is teaching us. He is the one who is leading us. God says then that he draws his people with gentle cords. This is a picture of an animal that is being led, not cruelly or harshly, not driven by a taskmaster, but but led along as he gently tugs and pulls us in the direction that we need to go. Sometimes, you see, we make good choices. Sometimes we make excellent decisions and they turn out really well. We maybe struggle. Should I take this job or this one? We may struggle. Should I stay employed or should I start my own business? We may may struggle. Should I go here or there? All kinds of decisions that we make. Folks, never forget that the psalmist said, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And that gentle tug that might have moved us in this direction... Than the other, it wasn't just provided by our own ingenuity. It's God leading us. We might say, "Wow, man, I did really good." God though speaks of how He draws us, and not only with gentle cords, but He calls them bands of love. Now, some of the modern translations will have that the cords of a man. The cords of a man. Uh, This is an expression, you see, that they use to what happens when a man is, and forgive me for this old word, wooing a girl. You know how it is. I mean, that girl catches his eye. He decided that she is for him. He is head over heels. Uh, We call this dating I'm not sure what they call it now. Courtship? Courting? We know the ritual. It hasn't changed much. Here's a boy. He's fallen head over heels with this girl. He can think of little else. He calls. He writes. He sends gifts. Everything that happens. Where once he couldn't wait to tell mom and dad, now he can't wait to tell this girlfriend. They talked for hours on end. I still think about it from time to time. Growing up in Taylor, Arkansas, you see, it was a long-distance telephone call to Magnolia. And back then, you had to pay money—I mean, real money. I didn't pay; my parents paid, but they had to pay real money for those calls. Oh, I got cheated out so many times. See, you could, I could slip back in the back bedroom if they weren't watching real careful while they were in there watching Lawrence Welk or whatever it was on Saturday. You know, I could slip back there and, and I could talk to Nancy for a long time. I have not a clue, honey, I'm sorry, what we talked about for an hour and a half. I don't know, you know. But I didn't know them. Mom and Daddy said, what did y'all talk about? Nothing. But that's that courtship ritual. He, he, he wants to talk all the time. Talk for hours. What are you doing? You're wrapping those bands of love. The cords of a man. That's what they called it. The bands of love. That are wrapped around that girl's heart. That will cause her want to, be, to want to be his wife. God used that imagery then to describe the way he is constantly at work in our lives. To wrap those bands of love around all of our hearts. So that we might be one to him. And oh, what a precious thing. That God cares enough about us. That he wants to have a relationship with us. Then he describes himself as the one who removes the yoke. From off of our neck. You see when God woos us and wins us. If you want to look at it that way. He doesn't bring us into bondage. No he's setting us free. You see sin had already had us in bondage. I got something to say to you tonight. Sin will never willingly set you free. It won't. Sin will keep you in bondage. And pull you deeper and deeper. It will never turn you loose willingly. Sin will not do that. It is God. God, then, who delivers us. And God alone. He said, I'm the one, then, who who took the the yoke off your neck. Of course, that had a specific meaning to Israel in the context. It spoke of how God delivered them from their slavery and bondage in Egypt. And when he lived out, then, the truth that we all live out today. John 8, 36. The Son, therefore, shall make you free. You shall be free indeed. See, God's desire is to be that faithful and compassionate Father to us, helping us learn to walk. Even though He knows once we've learned to walk, we're very likely going to use that ability to walk away from Him and two places that we shouldn't go. He'll give us blessings, even though He knows that it's highly likely that those blessings, the enjoyment of those blessings may rob us of our faithfulness to him. But he loves his children. and When we turn from him, he will draw us to himself with those gentle cords binding us to him with the bands of love that will not turn us loose. His loving compassion goes further. Look at verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. That's God. My heart churns within me. If God hadn't have said that, we wouldn't believe it. My heart churns within me, God said. My sympathy is stirred. God is describing the incredible feelings that he has for his children. God loves us. God loves us. know the New Testament talks about how we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God we ever think about that grieve not the Holy Spirit this is an Old Testament companion passage when he says to Ephraim how can I give you up how can I send you into judgment my heart churns within me God never abandons his children he promised I will never leave you, nor forsake you, we can rest assured in that knowledge that though everybody else would give up on us, we might even give up on ourselves, God doesn't give up on his children. You say, well, what about Romans 1? It is true, in Romans 1, three times God says that he gave them up. And in light of what he says here in this passage, that should really stand out to us even more. But it's not his children that he's talking about giving up in Romans chapter 1. Instead, it's those people who have gone into their sins. Those people who have rejected him. Those people who've turned away. Those people who don't even like to think about God. Don't like to retain God in their knowledge. There comes that time then when God would give them up. What a horrible pronunciation of judgment that is. But that you note this. That is not what God says to his children. God doesn't give up on us. So his description of compassion goes on. Verse 4, Hosea chapter 13. Yet I am the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. And you shall know no God but me. For there is no Savior besides me. God, you see, will describe how they've gone running to other gods and gone running after idolatry, indulged in horrible excesses, and yet he says, I'm still your God. You're still my people. I'm your Savior. Verse 9, he'll say, your help is from me. I'm still helping you. Not only is he their God and their Savior, their helper, uh, but verse 10, he says, I'll be your king. So he's still their leader. He's still leading them. God then has moved in tender and loving compassion. He moves in this way in all of our lives. And while it is true then that God loves us, He sees those times that He leads us, that we are blessed, we are helped, we are led along. He sees all of those times. But He also sees the failures, and that brings us then not only to His tender compassion, But his troubling concerns. In verse 5 he says. He shall not return to the land of Egypt. But. The Assyrians shall be his king. Because they refuse to repent. God wasn't going to send them back to Egypt. No. But because they refuse to repent. Because they refuse to turn from their sin. And turn back to God. God now. That makes this solemn pronouncement. Assyria. Will be your king. Not in Egypt. Not back to bondage. And, uh, unto Pharaoh. No God, God had delivered them from that. And they'd never go back. But now. You're going to go to Assyria. And they did. See over time. We can. Get to the place, even as God's children, where we lose our understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And we may very well find ourselves opposing the truth of God. Without even knowing it, without even realizing it. Because we've ended up calling wrong right. And that's what the Bible warns us about. Woe to him who calls good evil and evil good. Uh, God's people, yes, can lose our perception of what's right and wrong. In verse 6, then, he talks about how they were their own counsels. The sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. You see, when we refuse to heed the conviction of God, when he shows us how we are wrong and we refuse to repent, then we close the door of our hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean our heart's door doesn't open somewhere because we're going to get counsel from somewhere. And it's either going to come from within From our own mind and heart, or it's going to come from somebody else. And it might be somebody who doesn't even know God at all. This has always been a problem, but I think it is becoming an an acute problem in our culture today, where so many are listening to so many who don't have a clue. They don't have a clue what they're saying doesn't make any sense it's not scientifically true it's not biblically true there's nothing about these things that are true and yet so many are buying into it in incredible numbers what is it they've closed the door of their hearts to the Holy Spirit that they've opened wide open to their own counsel or even worse the counsel of their friends Over time, a strange thing happens, and that's what God talks about them here. They refuse to repent because of their own counsels. That is, they get so familiar with their sin, they'll choose it over God. Though they know that their sin will rob them of their closeness with God, though we know that our sin will rob us of our intimate fellowship with God, we choose to sin anyway. God will go on in verse 7. My people are bent on backsliding, bent on backsliding. That's an incredible, incredible statement. Uh, Maybe you've been out in the woods and you've run across a tree that was turned this way and turned up then this way. Somebody along the line turned it over, broke it off, and it grew up, and then it goes like this. Now, when I was a boy, the old-timers around Taylor used to tell us that that was an Indian marker tree. Uh, but I'm old enough, and I've gotten a little wiser now, and I realize that a tree this big around probably was not bent over in ancient times by an Indian somewhere and cut off to mark an old Indian trail. It was a fun story, though. And as kids, well, that's the kind of thing. We just ate that up. Yeah, that's what it is. What happened to that tree that it got bent that way? I don't know. If you wasn't there when it got bent, you don't know either. What we do know is that it got bent. Maybe somebody tied it off that way. Maybe somebody cut it off. Maybe a storm blew it over. I don't know what happened to it, but I know one thing. That tree got bent. And I know another thing. It'll never straighten itself out. No matter how long it lives, it's bent in that direction. Isn't it interesting that God says of his people, they are bent to backsliding. Again, the old hymn writer probably said it best. We are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Bent toward backsliding. Verse 12. God said His people have encircled me with lies and Israel with deceit. This is very simple. These are are people who are lying to God and deceiving themselves you realize tonight that when we lie to God, we never fool Him? Who do we fool? Ourselves. We can fool ourselves. Can't fool God. They've encircled we, uh, me with lies, but they fill themselves up with deceit. Uh, God describes them then in chapter 12 and verse 1 as feeding on the wind. Very similar to what... Uh, The wise man Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, when he kept saying, you'll see it over and over again again in that passage, uh, uh, you talk about vexation of spirit. All these things were like grasping for wind and the vexation of spirit. If you grab a handful of wind, what do you got? Wind's powerful, I'll give you that, but when we grab it, it's... If you eat the wind, what have you got? (laughs) Do you think God is painting them a picture here in the Old Testament? A lot of things that we go after are like feeding on the wind. Looks substantial, seems powerful, but when we take it in, there's just nothing to it. Verse 1, chapter 12, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolations. They make a covenant with the Assyrians. And oil is carried to Egypt. That's not petroleum. uh, That's olive oil. It was speaking then of the price of the covenant that they made with Egypt to protect them. Of course, Egypt couldn't even protect itself against the onslaught of the Assyrian armies. So, of course, they weren't going to protect Israel either. So, Israel was... Again, feeding on the wind, lying to themselves, lying to God. He returns to their deceitfulness. He calls them a cunning Canaanite. Verse 2 The Lord also brings a charge against Judah, will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his deceit deeds. He will recompense him. Verse 7 A cunning Canaanite, deceitful scales are in his hands. He loves to oppress. Jacob, of course, was a con man, a person who lived by his wits. And so when God speaks of his people as being like the cunning Canaanite, that would have been a grievous, grievous insult to them. Describe them then as people who were making their living uh, by unscrupulous means. We might think that God doesn't notice if his people adopt unscrupulous business practices. Rethink your thinking if you're thinking that. Well, it's just business, you're thinking. He says it right here. God notices. God knows. If we turn in this direction, we might say like Ephraim did. Look how rich we've become. But God knew how they'd made it. He was not pleased. Chapter 13, verse 5. And I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. Remember, we're talking about God's, uh, the trouble that God saw before them. He talked about his tender compassion, but now his troubling concerns. Verse 6, 5 and 6. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. They were filled, God says, and they forgot. God describes how he had a close, intimate relationship with them in the wilderness. Every day they would get up and they'd go out and gather the manna. Monday. What's for breakfast? Manna. What's for lunch, Mom? Manna. What are we going to have for supper? Manna. Y'all do remember what manna means, don't you? What is it? Uh, That's what it means, literally. What is it? What is it? I've always kind of wondered, you know, did they have it boiled for breakfast and then fried for supper? I I don't know. But I know one thing every day. Where did they get their food? God brought them bread from heaven. That's how they ate. When they needed to drink, where did they get a drink? God provided for it. They didn't know where to go. How did they know where to go? God led them. By night, it was by a pillar of fire. By day, it was by the cloud. God would look at that time and he said, There was a time when we were close and you were dependent on me. But then he says, You got these green pastures and full bellies. And all of a sudden, God says, They've forgotten me. God's tender compassion, his troubling concern. In the last part of Hosea's message, we'll save mainly till next week. And I don't tell you that, so you can skip next week. Say, boy, it's going to be tough next week. It's tough this week. God's timely corruption. I'll just give you a hint. It's Hosea chapter 13, verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. Again, like so much of this passage, this is a very, very graphic, pictorial language. One that they would have recognized immediately, of course. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up and his sin is stored up. Not much right now, but a little bit earlier in the year, you could see farmers all over the country doing exactly what this passage was talking about. They'd cut their grass out in their pasture. We call that hay. They'd run the tractors over it, and they'd bind it up. And then some of them, if they're old-fashioned in my way of thinking, would take it then and put it in the barn. It's bound up. It's in the barn. It's harvested. It's cured. It's bound up. It's in the barn. And so God was talking to them, whether about hay or some other crop. Obviously, they didn't have hay balers like we do. They did make bundles. And when that crop then was harvested, when it was bundled, and they took that then and stored it in the barn, what did that mean? That meant that it was finished. It was done. What was God telling them? God was telling them, This has gone as far as I'm going to let it go. Your sin is bundled up and in the barn. (laughs) Uh, This is done. It's done. It's not going to go any further. This is done. And it's time to move. i to tell you something. We need to remind ourselves tonight. Just take a little moment and just remind yourself. Uh, when God says a nation is done, that nation is done. God said, that's it. That's it. No, God's not like us, and we've all seen this and maybe done it ourselves. We'll say to our children, Don't you do that again? They do it again. <laughs> and then we say, if you do that again, I'm gonna whip you. Let me just stop and say, if you ever tell them that, do it. Every single time. Do it. We talk about them terrible twos, a little joy of parenting here for, uh, this afternoon. talk about them terrible twos? Listen, them terrible twos are really uh, just kind of like boot camp. God is training you for them terrible 13s, 14s, 15s, 16s, and 17s that are to come. And so you've got that time when they're little, and all it takes is a flash water or just a little bit of something on that leg. It's all it takes. And they're screaming, oh, they're not going to die. They're acting like they're going to die. They say, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you, then follow through. You won't have to do it very many times. And when you get that across to them when they're little, you know, that's a lesson. And it stays with them for a long, long time, especially if you reinforce it from time to time. There's a time when daddy says, You're done, and he means it. There's a time when mama says, You're done, and she means it. And your kids need to know when they're real little that you mean it. And there's an easy way to convince them. You say, Oh, Brother Rich, do you really believe in. Punishing those precious little innocent children like that? Yes, yes, I do. I did. I didn't just believe in it, I practiced it. Uh, the Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them. And it's not talking about taking them and beating them with a big old rod. It's just talking about corporal punishment. Yeah, there's a place for that. And sometimes it comes to that. You see, God was telling Israel so long ago. I'm done. This is it. I'm not going to let you go any further. Why? Was it because God did not love them? Oh, no. It's because God did love them. And he knew that if he didn't stop them where he stopped them, that the results were going to be catastrophic. It's going to be bad anyway. The worst thing that he could have done was let him continue on. You see, one of the great messages of this Old Testament book of Hosea is that God loves us just the way that we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. So that he is working and wooing and leading us out. He never gives up. And when it's time then to offer correction, he does. Next week, we're going to look at the way God does that. This loving, faithful God. But tonight we can wrap up by reminding ourselves then of God's tender compassion for us. How God loves us. But how that his love does not keep him from being able to see the danger of our behavior. Or how that it's time for him to pull us back. And yes, times when it's necessary for him to chasten us. Are you one of those tonight? That the Holy Spirit is telling you it's time to repent. See, the word repent means to turn around. It's time to turn around. You're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. It's time to turn around. If you've never trusted Christ, I can tell you, you're going the eternally wrong way. Because unless you repent, unless you turn to God and call upon Him in faith, Jesus said it long ago, you'll perish you'll perish. Except they repent, you'll all likewise perish. Maybe as a child of God, we've drifted from God. Maybe it's just because we got full and feisty and we forgot God. I don't know what's on your heart tonight. But if you need to spend some time getting right with God, this is a great time to do it. Let's stand together, please.